0: Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I am Bridget Scanlon. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts. And I'm really pleased today to welcome Paul Bowman. Paul is a senior engineer at BGC Canada, but on the side then, he does a lot of humanitarian work and that's going to be the topic of our podcast today, mostly work in sub-Saharan Africa. Where he applies his skills as a geophysicist and a hydrogeologist to find groundwater in remote areas in many countries. So, Paul, maybe you can give us a bit of background on how you got involved in this area from your early studies.
1: Sure, thanks, Bridget, and it's great to be here for the for the interview and the podcast. I I started my education as in Princeton in New Jersey, I have a geological engineering degree, which is focused on on groundwater. And then after I got out of university, graduated in eighty one, give you an idea of my age. I guess my main motivation for for a job as a scientist was something a little bit of excitement and get overseas. And the next five years I spent in Papua New Guinea and, and in Indonesian Borneo doing oil and gas exploration. I went back to grad school at, at the University of Waterloo, where I was able to combine my interest in geophysics and and groundwater. But I, I think it was that experience of living in Southeast Asia in remote locations, often working amongst very rural areas, very impoverished areas that kind of set the the pace for me to continually pursue rural water development in, in less privileged parts of the world. So, so since 1990, I've been running a, a near-surface geophysics group of about 20 geophysicists, with all of our focus being on the near surface so water exploration contaminant mapping archaeology tunnel detection but but we've always we've always continued to do rural water supply work uh, sometimes paid usually not but but all all parts of the world and, and i guess since maybe 2014 in particular much of that that focus has been in in africa and, and in east africa in particular
0: And it's interesting that this year the United Nations has focused on groundwater, and the mantra is making the invisible visible. And I think using geophysics, which you have applied in many areas, truly is an approach to making the invisible visible. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your work in the refugee camps early on from 2014 and Kakuma in in Kenya and, and how that began.
1: Sure, yeah. So even through the 90s, I've done a lot of water supply in, in, I guess I'd say, remote parts of the world. For instance, I've done many projects in Yemen and and Central America and in Aceh after the, the tsunami, post-tsunami reconstruction. But I'd never really been to a refugee camp until 2014, where where I was asked to teach a, a course in in introduction to groundwater, geophysics, water expression, water quality, in the Kakuma refugee camp in in northwestern Kenya. It's 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 I think then it was the third largest refugee camp in the world. Today I I believe it's the largest camp in the world at about 270,000 270, persons. And I wasn't there to, to make the improve the water situation or, or to explore for water or, or to, because the the camp, as are all refugee camps, essentially in the world, it was run by UN, UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission of Refugees. And I just assumed everything was under control and, and people had what they needed and everything was fine. I was there. I was there to teach. And, and the main goal, overall goal of teaching refugees in a camp was, was actually to create livelihood. So, for instance, if they were returning, being repatriated to a third party country, they would have a, potential livelihood to fall back on through being re- repatriated to their own company, country but even within the camp people in these these camps live on on rations that are that are very meager often less than 1500 calories a day sometimes less than 1200 and of those they calories of those food supplies they often sell many of them for phone cards for fuel for cooking so often, often even less so so one of the few jobs refugees can do in a camp is work in the water and sanitation sector. And by teaching this course, it allowed these refugees to work in that sector, get some extra money that could help support them and their families. But anyways, while I was there, I certainly got an up-close look at the water situation in this particular camp, the the Kakuma camp. And what I saw were very clearly, once once I, I got to experience camp life itself was that first, there wasn't nearly enough water and the water quality was not good. So to put a little more detail to that, typically UNHCR and, and most organizations, they they have a target of 20 liters per person per day in a camp. And if you think of the average North American, we use well over 300 liters per day. So 20 liters per person per day for cleaning washing cooking drinking in the middle of the desert in the heat of the day without air conditioning um, without dwellings that we would we would consider adequate is is not sufficient and the fact is really can they even meet these targets of 20 liters per day during the time I was in the camp the typically the targets they were able to reach between 12 and 18 liters per day i've been to other camps where the Yield per person per day is about as as low as six liters per day. So, so barely barely survival. And then, in terms of quality, water quality. Once I start, once I was able to look at some of the actual water water analyses at the camp, it was very clear to me that fluoride was a, a a ubiquitous problem in in this particular camp. Not surprising because of where the camp is located in the east. In the east africa rift valley and of course of course fluoride is, is commonly associated with rift valley environments alkali granites fluoride dissolving minerals and and so forth and fluoride's a problem elsewhere in the world it's not just in this camp but what makes it unusual in a camp of course or not unusual particularly say, nefarious in a camp is that you don't have a choice of other water sources you're drinking water and, and that's it and the, and fluoride is, the concentration, of course, is important, but what's more important is is the actual total consumption. In a hot environment, of course, you're, you're drinking more water. And if you're not drinking water, perhaps the only other fluid you might be drinking is tea, which further concentrates on um, fluoride versus us. We have filtered water, we have Coca-Cola, we have orange juice. We have a number of different sources of consumption every day. And here in Canada and most of the world, I, I think except for the United States, really, most of the world fluoride guidelines regulate fluoride to one and a half milligrams per liter. In the States, I believe it's four, but yeah. And, and above one and a half from one, once you start to get above three, you start to get in the, uh, the realm of dental fluorosis. So once you approach six, seven, eight milligrams per liter, you start to get into the realm of skeletal fluorosis. So in, the, in this particular camp from the 12 wells that was applying the camp while I was there, every well had, had fluoride concentrations at above, or way above WHO, Kenyan, Canadian guideline of one and a half milligrams per liter, and and dental fluorosis was obvious. You could just simply look at people's teeth, and you could see brown brown disc, discoloration, for instance
0: right and and so then you taught for a couple of years 2014 and 15 and then you had an opportunity then to try to help develop groundwater resources or you were working with some people on some of the existing wells and then you thought you could contribute uh to improve uh, the situation so those 12 wells were mostly in the volcanics and so they were getting fluoride from the volcanics and so, then maybe you can describe how you got started using geophysical tools, then, to try to identify different types of geology that would avoid some of that fluoride.
1: Yeah, issue. that's right. So, so yeah. So, I I, I taught this short course in 2014, and again in 2015, in the camp. And 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 again, initially, I I wasn't there to. I hadn't even considered doing a water exploration, water supply program. But through the course of being in the camp, and particularly there was one event, there was a a massive flood that that damaged some of the wells, some of the water lines that impacted some of the some of the wells. And I happened to be a, a hydrogeologist in this camp, and and UNHCR called up from from Nairobi and asked if I could do some well sampling and some well monitoring. And, and it was through that that I I got a chance to see up close the situation with the with the flow rates that are recorded with every well. With with the water chemistry, and I realized again, not enough water, and the water quality was not good. And I thought, well, I can do better. And and I knew what they had been doing because in the process of uh, teaching my course, I'd reviewed with my the class every single water exploration report that had ever been done in the in the history of the camp. And I got to see what the main methods were, which were two methods that I would I would never use. One is not type of environment. One is one D resistivity which is probably the most widely used geophysical technique in, in Africa, most certainly the most widely used technique. And in some areas it does work quite well, but like any 1D geophysical technique, 1D assumes that the only changes in geology are in the vertical. That is all the geology is laterally, laterally continuous. Like a layer cake, a birthday cake, geology. And in some places in the world, in some places in Africa, that's that is true. But not in the Rift Valley, you have you have massive normal faulting, you have great throws. You could have Precambrian igneous rock juxtaposed next to sedimentary rock, next to recent volcanic sandstone, siltstone, shales. You have everything, and then on top of that. The, the actual salinities can vary dramatically because you can have very fresh water, for instance, in, that is recharged shallow sands and gravels, or you can have very brackish to even briny waters from evaporite deposits that were churned up in flash floods and then entered into aquifers. So the geology is enormously complex, not at all suitable for 1D methods. And that's the good method they use typically. Typically, and, and and this isn't speculation, this is straight out of many of the water reports. I, I really want should say all the water reports I, I read, 1D resistivity would often be used because it is required by Kenyan guidelines, but ultimately wells would be cited using water divining, water witching, which which can boil down to a little bit of black magic, but really in practice and boils down to the experience of the of the driller siting the well. So sometimes can be good, sometimes not so good. But nevertheless, I felt I could do better with modern techniques and, and and a different approach. And secondly, I thought I could do better by targeting different aquifers. So, of the twelve wells that were supplying the camp in in two thousand in two thousand sixteen, when we we carried out our program, all of those wells, without exception, were drawing from from either entirely the volcanics or partially from the volcanics. And we know we know that fluoride has a at its source on. Um, from the weathered volcanics the flows of the well some were pretty good some were were variable but i was also hoping that it could improve on on quantity as as well so in two thousand sixteen after being there in two thousand and fourteen two thousand fifteen i i i got a, a grant from geoscientists without without borders and 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 i, and I typically i wouldn't say what the value is but I, but i'm going to say it now because in retrospect it was such a Microscopic amount of money to to accomplish what we did. It was fifty thousand dollars, and so for fifty thousand dollars in two thousand sixteen, five of my my colleagues and and a mountain of geophysical equipment, we came to the Kakuma ref, refugee camp, and we organized two crews from the refugees that had been training in two thousand fourteen and and fifteen, and we, we used some of that cash to to pay them to the maximum amount that we could by allowable UNHCR stipends. And we mounted an exploration program. We used two methods, seismic refraction and 2D resistivity. And our, and our goal here was not to look for what everyone else had been looking for, these weathered volcanics. Our goal is to look for a different type of aquifer, shallow, alluvial channels. We we knew the camp, I mean, if you've been to the camp, you know the camp is constructed between two large, what they call lagers into kind of ephemeral riverbeds, so wadi know, Arabic Arroyo, if you're in the US southwest. And we know these lagers, they periodically flash flood and they'll flow for for several days. And when they flood, we also knew that they would recharge, well we knew they recharged the volcanics because UNHCR did have some water level monitoring systems in their 12 in their 12 water wells. So we figured if well of if they were if the if the volcanics get recharged then certainly deep thick superficial sands and gravels will also recharge if we could find them so so we designed an exploration program to hunt out deep sand and gravel paleo channels connected to these uh, large lagers and how how do we how do we do that well seismic refraction of course simply measures gives you a, a cross section of the of the geology, of the subsurface. And pretty much wherever you are in the world, overburdened materials, unconsolidated materials, a slow velocity, rock is fast. So so that's easy, mapping out the top of rock. And if we know the, the top of rock, that is the depth to the depth to the basement, then we can very quickly map out where the thickest sand and gravel channels are, or, or at least the thickest overburden. We don't know where they're sand and gravel. And then we use 2D resistivity over these channels to determine if they're conductive. And if they're conductive, they're either saline or clay or saline clays, or if they're resistive, which would mean they're sands and gravels and water-saturated sands and gravels. And so so that was the idea. Find the channels with seismic refraction and then determine whether those channels were saline and clay-filled. Uh, freshwater and sand, sand and gravel fields. So, based on that program, um, which we did in January 2016, UNHCR followed with with three wells, and those wells were three of the most productive wells ever drilled in the history of the camp. Each and every one, each of those wells were were the only wells ever drilled in the history of the camp that had fluoride concentrations below Kenyan WHO guidelines. I think they're one point one point nine and 0.6 milligrams per liter. And they're all TDS. And I'm I'm extraordinary pleased, maybe relieved as a is a more accurate statement. I'm extra extraordinarily relieved that I, I was back in Kakuma in March of the, March of this year. So that's 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 22, 23, seven years later, and all those wells are not only are they still producing, but those are the main wells that are supplying the Calo Bay expansion camp. And more than half the Kakuma camps. So, so yeah, very, very successful. And it's such a bit of an exaggeration, but it, to some degree, I, I, I guess I could, a bit of hyperbole. I could say in, in a couple of weeks, and that's all our program was. A couple of weeks, we did more to developing, expanding the understanding of groundwater and water supply in 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 that camp that had been done for years and years. And and certainly a big part of that was simply, well, bring a, a fresh look at things, but also using modern geophysical techniques, not state-of-the-art. I mean, these are now standard techniques, seismic refraction and 2D resistivity. These should be used all the time, not not just exceptional circumstances.
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing, Paul, what you guys accomplished on such a shoestring budget, but you also have a big equipment business in, with a lot of geophysical equipment, but the logistics of taking that over there and, and making that happen, I just cannot imagine. But I think what I admire also greatly about your work is that you involve the local people. You had trained them in, in schools with the, the short courses that you provided in 14 and 15, and then they were able to use those skills and apply them in the field. That's fantastic capacity development. And so then they can go forward then and, and continue to do that. So as I if I recall correctly, you were able to map two paleo channels. And um, were they anywhere located next to what the current channels are, where the current channels are, or were the paleo channels in the subsurface located away from those current channels?
1: Yeah, the uh, so in the in the Kakuma camp, that that's right. We were able to we map paleo channels connected to the largest lager lager and 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 in, in retrospect, and, and especially in reference to the current drought, I, I think that was quite fortuitous in that, as a, as a, as I said up front, the you need you need an aquifer, of course. A shallow aquifer is, is only as good as how much water you pump at it, and how sustainable is that? Is how much water is is recharged, and we knew these aquifers are, are recharged, and we knew. In particular, the aquifers tied to laga will recharge frequently because it's such a large laga. And in Kenya, in the Turkana area, you get two rainy seasons, the what they call the short rains in the fall and the long rains in the springs. And there's usually a week or two of, of rain. They're not like monsoons. But what's happened, not like monsoons you might have in other other parts of Africa or India, let's say, but what's happened in in an unprecedented fashion since 2019, these rains haven't come. There have been five successive failed failed rainy seasons. And this whole idea of recharge can start to, to fall to pieces, especially in such shallow aquas. But fortunately, because we these particular channels were tied to Lagatarash Lagatarash is unusual in that its watershed actually reaches into Uganda which has re- received rains and and Lagatarash in fact has 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 flooded a few times over over the past few years and, and in fact is, is flooding right now so so that was that did work out and and it, and it's worth noting because you could say to some degree we 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 lucked out and but but I guess on, more broadly speaking, of course, every the solution that works in one area isn't going to work everywhere. And, and mapping PLO channels in Turkana West in the area of Kakuma might not be a successful approach in, in other parts. For instance, of of Turkana and and so, sure, the geology is important, but but every any area you work, whether it's Turkana or anywhere in the world, of course, the probably the first thing one should always do is is step back and look at the the broader geological context. And, and in this case, targeting these Pinot channels was a good approach because the entire camp, it's almost like an island set between two large, two large lagas, Laga Tarash and Laga Navik. So another part of the world, another part to kind of Turkana, another approach might, would, might, might be the way to go.
0: And and were you there when all the the wells were drilled how many wells were drilled in total at that camp and was, was that funded by UNHCR or I know you had some minor funding to to get going but then did all, did the communities drill the remaining wells or were you involved in all of those initial wells
1: Yeah in, in Turkana and Kakuma we were there in in January and then UNHCR in cooperation with University of New they provide some geological expertise. They in I believe in April and May they they drilled what, what became known as as boreholes 13, 14 and, and 15. And since then other wells have have been drilled. I think they're at well 19 at, at, at this point. and I think some of the, a few of those were drilled by WFP, World Food Program and FAO Food and Agricultural Organization, which are, which are subsets of of the UN. And again, this was part of my, my education going to one of these camps. So we hear about refugee refugee camps all over the world, but the reality is for the for the most part, with very few exceptions, all of these camps are, are under the UN, UN auspices, UN essentially UNHCR, United Nation High Commission of, of Refugees. Some uh, have shared control with, say, UNICEF or IOM International Organization of Migration, which are also UN organizations, but Essentially, the UN is responsible for these refugees. So they're responsible for food, education, security, um, protection, and, and, and water, of course, water and sanitation.
0: Right. And uh, so that was a huge success. And then you mentioned previously that some of these refugees come to Canada and the US and and uh, you were able to look at some of the health impacts of the high fluoride with studies in Canada. And you did publish some papers on that. That's that. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah. I'm bag uh, a little bit. I'm probably one of the few geophysicists that, that has a, a paper co-authored in, in the Lancet. And after, after one of our programs, I, I think it was after, after my, after, it was after my teaching stint in 2015, I, I came back to Calgary, and the doctor at the Calgary Refugee Clinic, Dr. Annalee Coakley, asked me to, to meet someone. So I went to a coffee shop downtown, and there was a, a, a refugee who had come to Calgary. His name was Muhammad, and he was introduced to me as a, a, a man that was 45 years old, and he had the skeletal structure of a of a ninety year old person. He could barely stand up on his own. He was on crutches. He was in a great deal of pain, very stiff, and they they had suspected the refugee clinic had suspected that he had fluorosis, but but they did what is the typical test, the urine test, and his fluoride level they were, they were typical of of anybody that lives in a in a in a city that that is florid that is drinking fluoridated water. But that was already a bit of a tip-off because at that point, Calgary had had the city council had voted to stop fluoridating. So that that didn't quite make sense. But nevertheless, his his fluoride levels from his urine were much less than someone that was suffering from fluorosis. As I recall, the clinic had contacted the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, and and they had responded that, in fact, they had looked at fluosis in, in many refugees, many of the Kakuma refugees that had come to the States. And anyone who's seen the, the, the movie, What is the What? The Hollywood movie would know a little bit about that, that, that they had tested them for fluosis and, and none of them had it. And, and probably they tested them for, for fluosis, not because so much they came from Kakuma, but they were coming from East Africa. Somalia, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, areas that that are known to have in the Rift Valley and are known to have high fluoride. But anyways, when I, when I met this refugee, Muhammad, I kind of kind of skipped the small talk and I, I asked him two two questions right away, What part of the camp did you live in? And he'd lived in the camp for six years and and how long and, and how long had he been in the camp, which was which was six years. And he had lived in in a section of Kakuma 2, the camps divided into 1, 2, 3, 4, and then t- into zones and blocks. And I knew from immediately from the reticulation maps from the water systems that he had been drinking from well 5 and only well 5, which is the well that had and has for many years had the highest fluoride concentrations, sometimes approaching 10 milligrams per liter. So in my mind, there was no doubt that he had... Had fluorosis, not having, any, nevertheless, not having any medical background, but but the Calgary, Alberta Health and the refugee clinic, they they essentially be- believe me, and they went on to do a battery of tests. They literally spent a million dollars on on the, on this one patient, doing all kinds of tracer tests and bone biopsies and 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 NMR surveys and three D imaging of a skeleton and so forth, and in in particular, what was diagnostic was the, was the bone biopsy that showed beyond any doubt that he was suffering from severe skeletal fluorosis. So of course, this is it's good for him because he has the diagnosis and, and then can move on from there, but it's good for all refugees because it it, it identifies that it is something to be looked at. It is something to be be targeted. It identifies that the uh, the practices until that until that time were inadequate for screening for fluorosis, and I and I tell you what I, what I have heard from doctors that previous this this di- this diagnostic diagnosis of of fluorosis that very often refugees would come complaining of skeletal pains, complaining of back pains, and they do the urine test. They don't have fluorosis, and their concerns would be dismissed. Oh, you're a refugee. You're suffering from traumatic stress. You're suffering from PTSD from that civil war in South Sudan or that famine in Somalia, or political violence in Burundi, and they would say, "No, my back hurts," and and they would not be believed. And and so this has given doctors, essentially all across the world, certainly in North America, a better tools to diagnose sclerosis and better understanding of the prevalence of fluorosis and well, certainly in the refugee community from Kakuma, but I'd say more broadly, refugees from East
0: Africa. Right. And so you worked in Kakuma early on. And when you went back recently, I got the impression that you were working with the communities around the refugee camp, because sometimes I've heard from NGOs that the communities around these refugee camps have worse situations in terms of water and food than actually the refugee camps so did you do work for the Turkana community when you visited recently or were you trying to develop water resources for the pastoralists or the groups there
1: yeah that 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 that's absolutely a it's a a definite perception from the from on the takana perspective it's definitely a reality in, in many aspects that people in the the refugee camps have a I don't want to say a, a a better life but it, but to some degree an easier life than, than what they call, and humanitarians speak, the, the host community. And, and in this case, the host community are the, are the Turkana people, which I'm sure for most people, they have no idea who the Turkana, you can kind of think of as these colorful Maasai-like uh, tribes people, but living a nomadic, semi-storless life in a, in a desert environment versus the, the savannah. So these are the people that have lived for millennia. In northern Kenya, in, the, in these desert environments, herding goats, donkeys, cattle, and, and camel through the Turkama, and, and then often ranging very far into Uganda, into South Sudan, into Ethiopia, basically following the rains, following the grass. And the last, again, the last few years has been particularly hard. It's been hard on the refugees. It's, they're, they're living on a limited amount of water, very limited food rations. And then all the problems of just being a refugee in a in a foreign country, but it's just as difficult for the Turkana. They 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 aren't having water trucked into them. They don't have education. They don't they don't have similar education services provided to them that UN is obligated, providing the camp. They don't have the medical services that the UN provides in the in the camp, and and so forth. And they benefit very little from the camp being on on essentially their their. Tribal land. So, uh, partly as compensation to this, many of the NGOs do try to provide some services to the to the uh, Turkana. So, for instance, in the training course that I was putting on, about thirty to forty percent of the students were Turkana people, and and in fact they were able to ben- benefit dramatically from this because some of the Turkana were from the uh, working with the Ludwa Water and Sanitation Company, Luasco, and uh, and it was great. They they were able to get a lot of very practical knowledge that they would then be able to, were able to apply for their for their jobs. But for the more traditional host communities that are a lot largely illiterate, that are pastoralists, that are their lives revolve around taking their flocks from one watering source to another. They they aren't benefiting from the camp, and they're suffering beyond words from from this drought. I mean, the the things you see people walking. 10 kilometers or more with a filthy 20 liter jerry can and digging down into a hole and taking what they would call water, what we would call mud and and then taking it back to their, to their home. It's, it, it's heartbreaking. So this most recent program that was sponsored by similar, similar sponsor and support as, as the previous programs I did with the small Israeli NGO called Israel Aid, as well as Umcor, the United Methodist Council of Relief. This particular program was targeting water sources for the host community, for the Turkana hamlets, say within 15, 15 and 20 kilometers of of, of of the refugee camp.
0: And, and were you successful? Was it the similar situation where you were to identify paleo channels, or was it the regulars on top of the volcanics? Or
1: yeah, that that's a that's a great a great question, and I, I was almost hoping you wouldn't, wouldn't ask it, but of course that's the <laughs> the obvious question. That the answer, the truthful answer is we 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 don't know. I mean, we were we were targeting we were targeting anything that might be a good aquifer. So yes, we were targeting paleo channels. We were targeting faults, and, and we did have some great success. Mapping some spectacular faults near we another Turkana Hamlet in 2016. It hasn't been drilled yet, but we think we have a, a, a great target there. There's sandstone units, there's, there's fractured rock rock units, there's a variety of different units that we were were targeting. We just completed the reporting. By Kenyan law, a drilling tender can't go out until there's been a, a report. So we finished the work in early March. We just completed the report. The report's going out now. We've cited two wells. We're hoping they'll be positive, but but we really don't know. And I'll say to some degree, I'm, usually I am usually have a pretty good idea, pretty much wherever we go in the world, but but we're really suffering from a significant degree of uncertainty here, L- largely for two reasons. The geology is just simply so complex. As, as I said, you have uh, every lithology you can imagine from, from you could be standing and uh, beneath you, beneath a floodplain, there could be pre-Cambrian granites, there could be Cretaceous sandstone there could be recent volcanics and then you have all kinds of faulting, and then and then you could and then even when you do find water it could be anything from blind to to uh, meteoric water. That's one problem and then, and then the other problem which is which of course we only we can blame nature on the first problem but we only have ourselves uh, to blame on the on the second problem there's, there's just really no background information of of any value there's no decent geological maps. There's no water well database. I, I was out in some areas with one of the Turkana experts from the Water Authority, who supposedly knows more about the geology of the area than anyone. And we were standing in a, a plane, a basin between two small mountain ranges. And I, I asked, and I showed him our ge- geophysical sections. And, and we knew we were on top of rock because we had very fast seismic velocities. And, we had no idea whether we were on volcanics or sandstone or crystalline basement. I, I asked him to speculate, give me your wildest guess, and he he couldn't. There's just no information. And and I say that's our, our fault because there should be information. Many dry holes have, have been drilled. Many, many. And many NGOs have worked there. Government has worked there. Church organizations, freelancers from all over the world have come to Save the world and and bring a rig and and stuck holes and in the, in the ground here and there and yet and yet you can't get any information and I say any not not I never saw a single lithology log and so people it's difficult to without any types of ground truthing it's difficult to make confident interpretations and certainly. A, a, and it's often difficult, even just to repeat, not to repeat mistakes that, that have already been done. So again, we use two D resistivity and seismic refraction, good good techniques for pretty much surefire finding of of paleo channels. But some of these hamlets were far away from any of the large lagers. So so we're looking for bedrock aquifers. Seismic's a great technique for finding faults and and resistivity. Can be pretty good if you have significant offsets. So we have that. Resistivity is great for ru- ruling out some some targets. So, for instance, the resistivity is really low. It could be saline. You don't want to dr- drill that. It could be shale. You don't want to dr- drill that. But, but you hit the sweet spot of resistivities of fifty to one hundred ohm meters. It could be. It could be a, an amazing sandstone aquifer. Uh, could be a a. Terribly weathered volcanic aquifer that, with all the fractures plugged up with clays, and and you really just don't know to until you drill drill a hole. So again, we have a couple targets, and they'll be drilling those in the next month or so, and and we're hoping they'll obviously we're, we're hoping they'll be successful, and and if they're not successful, we're we're certainly hoping the the information, as embarrassed as I will be, we're hoping the information we know the information will go public. We're hoping it will be included in government database that is being constructed now. And if it's success, yeah, and, go ahead.
0: Yeah. I, and I wonder, I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of NGOs and all sorts of groups out there drilling and doing all of this stuff, but some of them don't have geologists to help with that sort of thing. And then there are a lot of, when they drill dry holes, I mean, that's a, that's great information also. But we never publicize our mistakes or, or they call them test holes or something. So, and then they don't report them or, or things like that. So we would really benefit from more information. And it seems like some groups, they use colonial era maps that were developed in the 40s and 50s and have to rely on that. It seemed like there was a lot more geology done back then. Than there is now, but you have all these boreholes and you have them PVC cased, so you could just do downhole geophysics in many of these and get a lot more. I get a lot of information if there was an opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah, that yeah, you said a few things there, Bridget, that 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 are very very important, and and you're right. Different organisations will come and they'll want they'll they'll get budgets to drill very expensive test holes, but but a, a dry hole is, is certainly as good of are better than a test hole. Any geophysical program, of course, what do we do in geophysics? We try to identify some physical property that will distinguish an aquifer, the aquifer, what we're looking for from everything else, the host rock, the host material, freshwater from salt water, sandstones, from from weathered volcanics, and, and so forth. And all over Africa, it's, it's astounding, all over Africa, most water wells are PVC-cased. So you can run you can run induction logs for electrical conductivity or electrical resistivity. You can run natural gamma logs to identify lithology to distinguish clays from, from shields. And you can run magnetic susceptibility logs to get a sense of how useful magnetic exploration would be. And that's something I, I I I being a geophysicist, I I like see like looking at physical properties, it's like other people would it's like another sense. It's like you have sight and sound and and taste you visit us. we have resistivity and magnetic susceptibility and radioactivity these are these are our our sensors and and it's how I, I try to begin i like to begin any exploration program we, we did a a massive water exploration program in Malawi in 1999 2000 2001 and and the first thing we did was we we pulled a lot of the pumps out and it, we pulled we, we identified about 20 wells That weren't functioning. And they had long history of production. They had long history of production, but the well the the pumps themselves weren't functioning. So we pulled the pumps out. And while the pumps were out on the ground and being fixed, we did borehole gamma resistivity, magnetic susceptibility logging. And we were able to identify what were the physical properties that make a good aquifer, what are the physical properties that produce a dry hole. And that's how we designed that program. And and that's what I've I've tried to do since we just did something very similar immediately preceding this Kakuma program in in, in North, northwest Kenya we did a 3 week water exploration program in in northern Uganda and there we did exactly that we we divided it into two crews one crew who repaired wells and they pulled they pulled the pumps out they repaired the pumps and while those pumps were out of the hole we do surface geophysics, 2D resistivity, we do borehole geophysics on resisti- resistivity and magnetic susceptibility. We do hydraulic on- hydraulic testing. We do isotope sampling. We do water chemistry sampling. We run a borehole camera. Something almost everyone forgets is when you have a, a hole in the borehole, all you really know is you have a borehole there. You don't know where it's screened. You don't know what the depth is. You don't even know if that driller really did put it a- a screen there so so we always run a borehole camera as well and really try to pull as much science out of the well as we can and then we use that information to inform our our exploration program and i can tell you in the i don't know 40 or so holes we've drilled in uganda we we have not had a a dry hole and and we think part, a big part of that is is because a huge part of that is 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 doing all the all the science that we do on these repair holes, and most most NGOs they would they would just laugh at this. They would say, "This is a aid project. This is a humanitarian project. It's not a it's not a research project." But in fact, that that science is is really what allows the the real confident exploration to to go forward. And and the great thing too is after we've done all this science at these repair ho- holes, we put the well back in the we put the pump back in the hole, and the, and that village has a a, a work. Well, usually, usually installed better than the the previous wells, so it's a it's a win 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 situation.
0: Well, I think that that's incredible. I mean, I I did a little bit of geophysics way back early in my career when I was working on radioactive waste disposal in West Texas, and and Jeff Payne was trying to teach me some geophysics. But I mean, if you're walking along and you're trying to figure out where we were trying to find places where there was no water movement for radioactive waste disposal. But having an an electromagnetic instrument that you could walk along with you was like a set of eyes. And then you could do downhole, borehole stuff to try to figure out what was controlling what you were seeing. So I I think it's, it's amazing. And I think with the United Nations program this year, making the invisible visible, maybe we can promote more and more geophysics. And then if NGOs and other groups get more comfortable with it, they can realize the value of it because, I mean, you read a lot of reports, maybe one in six wells are successful or five out of six might be dry holes. And and so really, we have to improve that success rate.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely, Richard. And and certainly, I can tell you, I've been to what it called, I, I guess what they call cluster meetings. I, I've been to many of these in, in in crisis situations. For instance, in Bangladesh after the Rohingya ethnic cleansing, and in and in Aceh after the 2004 tsunami, and so forth. And, the, and these cluster meetings, all the NGOs and and UN workers and international aid agencies, they all gather from their various sectors. So, for instance, a wash cluster, cluster water and sanitation and hygiene, you'll have whatever 50, 60 People working in that sector in in a room and and yeah, it's a fundamental problem in the humanitarian sector. I mean, not only do people working in Wash need to learn about geophysics, but but very often, and and really the truth is, most of the time they, they simply do not have a a strong professional background in hydrogeology. In, in general, most of the time they come from a logistic background or a public health background. Very rarely, you'll actually have a hydrogeologist making hydrogeological decisions. And, and 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 almost never will you have a, pretty much never will you have a geophysicist in the room saying, you should do some borehole geophysics. You're in Bangladesh. You're on the Teknath Peninsula. You're drilling this there's, there's ocean within 500 meters of the ocean and on each side. You should... Do some surveys to map the saltwater intrusion front, and no one's even asking those questions. So, yeah, there's a the whole level of the humanitarian sector needs a major um, facelift in terms of it of even asking and then addressing the the important professional questions to to deal with the subsurface. Ha, ha, having said that, uh, as, as I think you you in, and I know something that's caught the interest of of people all over the world a lot of our work is we're working i mean i'm working less and less with ngos less and less with professional humanitarians let's say and and more and more with the people in the villages with the people that are depending on the wells that are actually drilling the wells that are trying to make their livelihoods supplying their own livelihoods and 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 their own villages and and certainly, what I've found over the last many years to working in places like Kakuma, but especially in, in small villages, is yeah, maybe you need a degree in geophysics to understand everything about ev- everything, but but you don't need a do- degree in geophysics to do geophysical surveys. N- no more th- than you need to be a master mechanic to to drive a car. And so, so <laughs> we've been putting a lot of energy into uh, into people in, in these areas where we've been working, in Zambia, in northern Uganda, and even in in, in Kenya somewhat, to train them on how to do their own surveys, how to interpret their surveys, and then how to actually follow up on their data, not just have some plots and data and and, and wait for some NGO to magically appear from the sky and, and put a, a water well in, but to drill their own wells, to install their own pumps, to maintain their own, own pumps, and and everything I've seen is it can be done and, and in general it can be done a lot better than the humanitarian sector has shown that that, that they can do it. And absolutely no question they can do it a lot cheaper. But we, we just finished our second well in Uganda. And I say we, I'm sitting here in my basement and, and the Ugandan villages we've been working with, they finished the well and the the, the cost of that well was twenty one hundred dollars for drilling casing hand pump civil works are so, so yeah, I think, yeah i think
0: that that that's amazing and your description of them drilling hand drilling the wells it may take them a week or two or whatever to drill some of these wells But it seemed like they're using technology that they're comfortable with, and and then it seemed like they would feel like they could drill the next well and the next well, and they wouldn't be relying on outside groups then, and so they become more self-sufficient. So the drilling, and also I think I was impressed with your attention to detail, with the the cement apron and to prevent any contamination of the wellhead and and keep water away from it. All of those details are so important, and and then the capacity development, the training of the local people. Then it seemed like they're more likely to keep maintain these wells and keep them functioning. So I think all of those aspects feed into a resilient water system for these groups.
1: Yeah, that that that's right, Bridget. I mean again a lot of NGOs would would laugh at us. Like we're going to drill so in this last program in, in just three weeks in less than three weeks in the field in, in Uganda, we, we repaired wells in eleven villages, restoring water supplies to about six thousand people. We did all this science. And then we sited uh we cited eleven wells and those wells are, are being drill drilled now. And it takes about two weeks to, to drill a well. When I say drill a well, that's drill the well, install the casing, install the pump, and then build a, a fence around the area, plant a garden, do the civil works. And, and again, a lot of NGOs would laugh at us. They would say, look, we could we could do all that in a month with a, a mechanical rig. But to some degree, I'd say that they're missing the point. First of all, there's no sacrifice in, in quality. These, these wells we're, we're putting in. It's the same hand pumps they would they would use for a mechanical rig. We have an annulus that we, we sieve a gravel pack, we we put a bentonite plug, we do water sampling, we still do water chemistry. It takes longer. And there's advantages to take longer. We get better cuttings. I, I think we more properly sight the screens. We use we use a crew of about 18, 16 to 18 to drill these wells. We're using we're using in these wells, we're using what's called the Baptist methods where where you you basically show up at the site, you cut three three trees down or one one long tree. you make a tripod, you rig a block, you have the the drill st- you have the drill stem and a bit with a foot valve and then a percussion bit. Usually we start with a one and a half to three inch bit. and then you can pound your way down through weathered crystalline rocks. You can get down 20 25 meters in in a few days. Couple of days, and then you ream out to four inches. You ream out to six inches, and and you end up with the same thing as a mechanical rig. But you've used the village. You've employed the village. But you need water for mud. The village hauls water because you don't have water. That's why you're, you're they're drilling the the, the wells. So they're hauling water from a stream or, or a spring. So they're very they're. They're providing the the muscle power of lifting that stem, dropping it, lifting it, dropping it thousands of times a day. So they're very involved. They're very engaged with it. They they see every detailed step of the of the well construction. They're working with our Ugandan trainees. To, they get to know them. Our Ugandan trainees are living in the village during that time. They're being fed. They're they're being housed. And when and if there's a problem down the road with the well, the villagers. They'll better understand what the problem is. They'll know what the problem is. They'll better take care of the well. They'll better maintain the well, and they'll, without any question, they'll have this ownership of of the well that that simply is is not there when an NGO or, or some other or church organization, some humanitarian organization, comes in with their mechanical rig, rips the hole down in a few hours a few engineers from the big city from Kampala or Gulu build the, the silver works and they, they walk the they walk away. There's, there's no ownership, there's no understanding of maintenance and, and that's certainly one of the main reasons why wherever you go, not just in Uganda, wherever you go in Africa you see I, I would estimate one out of three wells is simply not not functioning and there's no there's no re- reason for that they they should be functioning people in the villages should be able to maintain their own their own water systems
0: right and i think that was similar to the results from the British geological survey studies so that you know about a third of the wells are not functioning and I think the approach that you use then with the techniques that people are comfortable with, the communities are comfortable with, and then in the process, then they they learn about the geology and, and the functioning of the well and everything. So I think it's time well spent and then to have a large group and then they have the other people that they can call on later if they have issues. So I really appreciate your you're taking the time today. I'm a huge fan of your work, Paul. Our guest today is Paul Bowman from Calgary, who has been doing humanitarian work in many regions globally. But what we've discussed today was mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. He provides the geophysical equipment, and then he does the work pro bono, and he organizes all of this. I just cannot imagine. I just feel maybe you just don't sleep, Paul. That's all I can surmise, but I, I really appreciate what you do. And and I hope that we will get other groups to incorporate your techniques more and help expand this program.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Bridget. It's 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 so much fun talking about these programs and partly because they're so interesting and they're so important, but I can tell you also because they're, they're just so much fun. I mean, it's great working in Africa. It's fantastic working in the These villages it's it's so fantastic working creating your kind of own mini organization where where you're working directly with the with the people and eating their food and speaking their language and 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 seeing how they live and and really seeing firsthand the the benefits of all this education and and efforts it's it's very it's very satisfying and it's a good time i recommend it to anybody
0: Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Thank you, Bridget.
1: Bye-bye.